Hi everybody, I'm Ariman Meer, the CEO and founder for Myra Capital. My father, like most people of his generation, had a bias for saving rather than spending. Eating out was something you would do at best once in a month. And where did he put all his savings? In residential real estate. He bought not one, but three houses throughout his working career. And I guess a lot of Indian middle-class families have a similar story to tell. Now, I really think that there is a missed opportunity here of investing in commercial real estate. Commercial real estate means office space. Now, why is this an interesting opportunity that Indians miss out on? So that's something that we discuss in this conversation. And the reason why we miss out on it is the opportunity that Myra Capital is chasing. Simply put, you need to have tens of crores to invest in high quality commercial real estate because the kind of office space that an MNC would want to lease out will cost that much. So listen on to this insightful masterclass on all things commercial real estate. We talk about the trends, we talk about what can we expect in this space, and we understand how Myra Capital is disrupting this space and really creating a very unique asset class for average Indians. You're listening to the Founder Thesis Podcast with your host, Akshay Dats. I've actually been in the US for what, seven to eight years before moving back to India two years ago. Went alone for education purposes. So both my parents, you can say to some extent, were entrepreneurs in their time. So currently they run an established architecture practice, but of course they both were the founders and creators of the whole brand. I was very young when they were setting it up, but definitely I saw the different stages that come in setting up a business, the kind of responsibility and also accountability you have to various stakeholders. So those things that I got to see in real time. So I did my undergraduate and master's from the University of Pennsylvania, the engineering school. So a lot of that was tech driven. So I did computer science, networks, engineering. Eventually I did my master's in big data and systems. But simultaneously, I kept taking courses in finance and real estate for Wharton. And because your parents were in, in sort of like the real estate services space, so which is why you had an interest in that space. Well, actually, what it intrigued me is that the real estate sector in India was quite unorganized to the extent that there were large players and the barriers to entry were quite high. Being in this space for so long, what my parents, they made certain investments and those investments did well. So I was constantly looking at a way of sort of making the whole asset class more accessible, more friendly, changing the perception of the asset class and leveraging technology for it because that was my core competency and predominantly technology and real estate, you know, tend to go and in much lesser than other fields. So actually, I was doing a lot of coding much before I went to UPenn, so I was very comfortable with the one curriculum and schoolwork. So quite often I kept taking time even off from college to work in interesting startups. At one point I extended my summer internship into a full one year job. You know, my college experience wasn't so much to get through a curriculum as it was to figure out what I wanted to do. I worked at SoftBank, the Vision Fund. I even worked in, uh, so with the ex-CEO of Housing.com, Rahul Yadav. So he was building an entire tech backend for Anadoc. So I was there from the inception of that tech solution development until the launch of it. So I took a year off home and actually even do this. Wow. Okay. Anadoc is in India. So you came to India or this was like a remote thing? So we started off remotely because this was actually at the intersection of all my interests. Eventually I realized that it's very different being a remote team member of especially a startup and being then present. So one fine day, I just took a flight to Mumbai and one day led to the next and I was there for over eight to 10 months. Okay. And what does Anarok do? What? How would you define that company? What is their business line? Sure. So they are a consultancy in the real estate field. So they look at various things. They look at a traditional broking, which they are most commonly known for, at least to a larger audience. They're known reports, valuations. But interestingly, what Anadoc has done is taken a tech approach to things. You can say tech developments that they've made recently, they've come up with an AI algorithm to understand the quality of inbound leads. So here on today, brokers speak to 100 leads before converting one. Anadoc is trying to, via AI, filter that down to a much lower quantity of leads required to convert one. So they try to approach it from this aspect and I found that very interesting. 
and working with that CEO of housing.com was being in the prop tech space. But eventually I moved back to the US. I worked at SoftBank thereafter. At SoftBank, in fact, I saw a lot of startup space. I saw finance. So I spent my next couple of work experiences in investment banking and venture cap just to get that finance aspect of things. And eventually when I felt that I bought the required experience, I started looking for a pivot into the prop tech investment space. But eventually I realized that the models I was looking at in the US were lacking in India and that's where effectively I saw the opportunity. What was the thesis? Like what was the gap you identified that you felt could be a, there could be a business built around it? So sure. So there were three issues with real estate. The first being that there was too much data asymmetry and the investment size was very large for commercial. So 50 crores, 70 crores. And the point is it doesn't matter if you're HNI or not. That much concentration risk is not ideal. So that was what. The second was that at the start of COVID and all of this transpired at the start of COVID, uh, your fixed deposits and debts, uh, debt products were not giving good returns. Even today, your fixed deposits are giving 5%. That commercial real estate comes very attractive where you get monthly cash flow, you know, long-term rentals and 8 to 10% yields. That was the second part. And the third part, again, was something which was uh, situational. The SEBI and RBI increased the minimum investment requirement at most alternative funds. So someone with 10 lakhs, 25 lakhs, even 50 lakhs, didn't have very many investment options apart from mutual funds and FDs. That was the whole ecosystem which enabled us to come into a very niche segment, uh, a very under to segment for that matter, and effectively open access to real estate, which previously investors were not even considering. In what sense open access? Like traditionally, middle class savings always include buying a house. So so in what would you say that they did not have access to it? Sure. So in fact, when I went and asked people feedback about their experience in real estate before starting my day, I only heard two things. One, either they made a lot of money or second, they burned their hands. There was no middle ground to go investing in real estate. Now the point with residential is that, you know, you get a 2% return. Now, Sure, if that area tends to appreciate, then you speculatively made money. 2% return, uh, can you define return? Are you talking of rental income or appreciation? Your rental income. So, you know, it's about 2%. Everything else is left with speculation. And more often than not, investors are not making money. I mean, the whole asset class has been quite flat for a few years and, you know, there's a lot of oversupply. The second avenue by our people who are investing in commercial real estate was through those smaller shops. So there was a lot of instability in tenancy. There was a lot of uncertainty, high maintenance cost. So again, that came with its own challenges. The traditional way of investing into real estate where funds are participating, your whole advanced HNI are participating, is commercial real estate. The reason for that is twofold. One, you have very long-term leases with your MNC tenants and New York Stock Exchange District tenants, 15 years, 20 years. So that way, your visibility into the kind of rentals you're getting. Second, the returns are also very competitive. You get 8 to 10%, again, only from rentals. This is not with appreciation. So the proposition was something which enabled us to give access to real estate in a much more controlled, structured, and safe manner when sort of diversifying into this asset class. So uh, what you're saying is that large-sized commercial real estate is a very good investment which a middle class person normally cannot access simply because of the entry barrier of the minimum ticket size of doing that purchase. No, absolutely. In fact, if you see the last couple of years, what is up? Brookfield, Blackstone, all your institutional funds, they are deploying more capital in Indian commercial real estate than anywhere else in the world. So right now we are a developing country, capital values are low and the go fundamentals of India are very strong. They are a global ID hub. So to that end, we will we have access to cheap and quality talent. So a lot of MNCs are increasingly setting up outsourcing centers, capability centers, research facilities in India. And so you said that there is something called an alternative fund that also allows you to access this kind of a project, like a large commercial real estate project. Yes. So there are alternative investment funds. These funds, the basic requisite is a one crore of investment. So that's the first threshold. The second and more important difference is that traditional funds like the one we're discussing, these have been blind pool funds where you give money to an investor, to a fund manager, and he allocates it as per his best understanding. In our case, we follow the reverse fact. We identify what we're investing into and then position it to our investors and ask them, do you want to invest in this or not? So the kind of transparency into the end use of that funds is far over here and people are increasingly getting to put off by blind pool funds. So the, this alternate investment fund, you're saying that is a blind pool fund? Absolutely. So that's one of the traditional funds. 
And yes, in some cases, they have a, they identify a sector or they identify a city. We'll invest, let's say, in Bangalore or, or we'll invest in senior living. But the underlying assets have never been identified. So that again comes to the discretion of the fund manager. So it's like mutual fund where you can say large cap, you're investing in a large cap mutual fund. But which stocks is the discretion of the fund manager? That's the most accurate comparison actually. But then there's a reason why that exists, no? Because lay investor would not have the time or the expertise to make a judgment on is this a good investment or not and so you leave it to the experts that's the logic behind that right no absolutely in fact so there are a certain type of investor who prefer that however the, what we are positioning is that we're still doing all the work where we identify the property we do the diligence acquire manage it's just that we tell you what you're getting into before you invest so the moral expectations are in line with what we are doing as an investment platform. So there's no discrepancy of information. So often what will happen is a bank will reject a certain return. Your investors expect that return, but the underlying assets are not delivering in right, at least not in rental immediate appreciation. So then misalignment of interest is the reason as to which people have started navigating away from light pool funds. In fact, light pool funds today, they are getting lesser and lesser traction from institutional investors and retail investors for that matter. But a retail investor cannot access a blind pool fund or uh, because the, you said it's like a one crore minimum ticket size to invest. Yes, so there is, it is a one crore minimum and the definition again of retail investor. Ah, okay. HNI retail. Yeah, it gets stretched, but effectively when you talk about retail, it's anyone who isn't investing 20 crores, 20 crores, ones who could have bought the property themselves. There was this concept called real estate investment trust. So what was that? I remember reading about it a couple of years back when it was getting launched. Sure. So real estate investment trusts are actually a fantastic vehicle which promotes the entire commercial real estate sector as a whole. It's been prevalent globally for a much longer time, but today it's very recently it's been introduced in India. We've seen four REITs come into the market. Now, what a REIT effectively is, which was fund of real estate, they have a lot of underlying property, which is yielding. Now, the rental gets passed on to the investors as dividends. And effectively, you're betting on the whole commercial real estate market. Because this is not one building, not five buildings. This is a scattered portfolio of billions of square feet in India. It's more like betting into commercial real estate than of picking your winning stocks. So that's the basic difference. Okay. And this is also closed off to normal investors or is it more like a mutual fund where anyone can invest? Sure. So today, I think SEBI has reduced the minimum to only one lot. Earlier, there was a minimum of 400 lots. What is a lot? Sure. So you know how in equities you have shares, the same shares are referred to as lots. So in entries. So over the minimum subscription or minimum investment size has drastically reduced over the last few years. In REITs, so today someone, yes, can, you know, invest with a few thousand or lakh rupees also in a REIT. The problem is the supply because the people who are bought this are who are usually institutional investors. And there's very limited supply in the market of REITs. So for that reason, whilst everyone can invest in REITs, it's difficult to actually get access to it. And what is the rupee value of one lot? You said one lot is the minimum. Yeah, it keeps fluctuating like an equity stock. So some stocks are like at, let's say, 1,000 rupees, some are 200, similar with redraw. It varies rate to rate and day to day. But like a ballpark estimate? You know, if I remember correctly, around 400 rupees or one of the rates. I mean, this is, there's no a significance of that absolute number. It's like a share price. I mean, that you have a unicorn company with a share price of that rupees. It's the same. It's the same. Uh, and now REIT, you're saying, has not taken off really. If you're saying that there are not enough REITs available, it means there's not enough demand for it. Like it hasn't taken off as an investment class. No, no, not necessarily. I mean, what happened is, if a lot of investors buy it and they don't want to liquidate it, then you know, there is no supply for the next guy to buy. But then if a lot of investors are buying it, it would attract efficient market hypothesis. Yeah, but setting up a REIT is not, you know, so for example, let's say there was a lot of demand for a certain industry. Companies coming into that industry would still have to set up their companies. They would have to run their operations to a point of listing. So similar with REITs, the demand would be there today. But until a REIT becomes mature, until you are ready to read for that matter, it takes two, three years to set up and prepare for the REIT. So just because this demand doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be supply at that moment. But yes, we will see quite a few REITs coming into the market over the next couple of years. In fact, I think this year, two more REITs are planned. Okay. And why does it take so much time? Because you need to do a lot of due on-ground due diligence of plots, properties. That's why it takes time. Or is there like an approval mechanism which takes time? No, I mean the entirety of it. So you can sort of compare this to an IPO listing. So even IPOs take months and months to plan and listen. This is after we create IPOs for years. 
REITs are relatively new. You can, you can start in some senses, put this as a IPO of real estate or a portfolio of real estate. So yes, there's regulation. It's relatively new, so it takes longer. Real estate also is a bit more difficult to structure in terms of only entities and sort of FPVs and things like that. So it just takes time, but it will get streamlined and, and when more needs come into the picture. Got it. Okay. And what is the management fees in a REIT? Like in mutual fund, I think it's 1 or 2%, something like that. It's similar for a REIT? It's 2%, I think it was REITs today. Got it. Okay. Okay. So essentially, what is the positioning of Myra Capital is that this is for a more sophisticated investor who would want to select because REIT, alternate investment funds, these are all blind pool funds. You can't pick and choose one property. But if there is a more sophisticated investor who wants to pick and choose properties and yet is a retail investor, not someone who's investing 30 crores. So that is where Myra Capital comes in. Sure. So a closer and comparable, I guess, to a practical platform is like a private equity real estate fund. So the difference being that what they do is they acquire a certain property under market rate. And their own return proposition is, yes, rental, but it's also to exit the property four to five years. And then give capital appreciation. A REIT, on the other hand, capital appreciation might happen based on stock price appreciation, but that's not the intent of a REIT. The intent of a REIT is really to get your rentals in flow. So, you know, that's the primary difference. So, in a product like ours, yes, you're investing for rentals, but you're expecting the appreciation at the end of it. So, it's more in line with private equity real estate than uh, you know, a REIT. So, there, there's like a fixed time limit of the investment. It's not like a perpetuity thing. You are very clear right from day one that you're buying in and in a couple of years, this will get sold and the money will come back to you with capital appreciation. And in the meanwhile, you'll keep getting a share of rent. Absolutely. So that's the basic intent of that report. Got it, got it, got it. Okay. And how does the capital appreciation happen in a REIT? Does the price of that lot get updated based on the estimated market price of the underlying real estate assets? Or is it like a traded thing and therefore there's a discovery of price happening? Yeah, anything that is listed operates the same manner based on demand and supply. So the underlying fundamentals really are no bearing, even in companies, at least in anything that is listed. Look at how certain IPOs are performed now. They were valued at a certain price of cost on accounting for the fundamentals. And similarly, I mean, to give you the converse example, at the start of COVID, like the embassy, everything went according to plan. There were no changes in rental collection. In fact, they got 100% rental collection. The stock price fell by 30%. Why did it fall 30%? Because of retail investors' speculation. Precisely. So yeah, that's how it is. So uh, th- that way, the REIT is not like a mutual fund because mutual fund price is not determined by demand supply pressures, but it is calculated based on the underlying equity on a daily basis, like the NAV. But yeah, the value of those equities are still speculative. So at the end of the day, it's the right speculation, but all these things are, I mean, tomorrow there's a sell-off. All of this will come now. So REIT is sold on, on NAC, BSE like a regular share? Yes. So essentially REIT is like an IPO only then because you're like listing the shares of it. Okay. So what happens when a portfolio becomes too large for a single investor to exit? Take embassy for example. No single investor can buy a portfolio. So what then they do in the REIT so that they also get a means of liquidity. Otherwise, what do these developers do after aggregating this portfolio? Okay. So a REIT comes in when you already have the assets and then you go out and list those assets rather than then collecting money to buy assets. That's not what a REIT is. Correct. Got it. Cool. I understand. So, so which is again another fundamental difference. Like in Myra Capital, it's not that you already have an asset and you're monetizing it by allowing investors to come in, but you're identifying assets and then inviting investors to come and fund the purchase of that asset. Yes. Got it. Cool. And so help me understand your zero to one journey. So you had an idea to do something like this. How did you proceed then? Were there any kind of regulations in this space? You know, did you need some sort of approvals? How did you actually go about building that pipe for an investor to have just one small share in that overall thing. How did you do all of that? So the first things that we did is that we got a very solid legal framework around what we were doing. So we appointed a tier one law firm, Avishan Mangildas, and that was the most time-consuming part. So that actually made the idea real. So six months of work with CAs and uh, legal, you know, helped bring to life an idea in the current structures. And when is this? Like when you started working? Which year? Just to establish timeline. One and a half years ago, I think we launched our platform. So 
considered up about two years ago. So we, st- we started all of this work about two years ago. It took six months just with legal and accounts. Right, like early 2020 is when you started. Yeah, roughly. Once all that work was frozen, then, you know, we slowly started recruiting and we didn't recruit 10 people to begin with. We just started with two people and everyone did all the work. So that's how it initially was in. Rather than trying to perfect our product, we thought that let's just pull out something which works and let's do a proof of concept. So that's how we went about it. We did a proof of concept which went well. And after that, it was just pretty much all organic growth. What was the result of appointing the law firm? Was there any kind of a regulatory approval that you secured or was it just to understand that, okay, what I'm doing is allowed? No, so since it's an investment, there is an investment structure that I invest with documents, companies that compliance, there's private placement compliance. So all of these documents have to be done and templatized, which is what we did with our legal firm. We understood how we fit into those frameworks. What are the limitations? How do we get around the limitations? Because in India, there, there are many structures in which you can do everything. Choosing the best one, figuring out because it's not that one is necessarily better than the other. It's who is your target audience and what would be best for them. So that's what we have to So help me understand what you learned, uh, that what structure is best here. Like, give me some details. Sure. So I mean, there are many structures. There's an LLB structure, there's a private limited structure. There's a lot of types of taxation. You know, you can do house property tax, business income tax. There's many organizations and combinations. So we sat down on Excel, we went through it one by one and we eventually just figured out a structure that number one, what is most important is a sense of security with the investment. So that's what we prioritized. So we chose a private limited, it gives that comfort over an LLP. And second is that we will want monthly cash flow. So we created a product that had passed through taxation, which enables them to optimize tax in their hands. So these are all choices that we made. And all the documents and everything took a lot of time to prepare. We had to figure out that uh, since there are going to be many investors, how do we ensure that one investor's liabilities don't pass on to the next? So all these kinds of clauses have to be developed. We had to think from the shoes of an investor and effectively that's what took by you. What are you selling? Are you selling shares in that private limited company or? Yeah. So, okay. So you, every investment opportunity is a new private limited company whose shares are sold. So therefore people have ownership. Yes. Got it, got it, got it. So so each time you identify something, then you would first go about creating a private limited company to raise the funds to acquire it. And once you hit that target number is when the company would go out and buy that that opportunity, that piece of property that you want to acquire. Absolutely. Got it, got it, got it. Okay, okay. And yeah. the people, who, so these are people who are now owners of a private limited company. But then in private limited company, you don't exactly have liquidity to sell your shares of a private limited company. So so what is the... the so they can't sell it off until the project is finally sold and the uh, that cash comes back. No, we have a secondary market like NCDs and LDs. Most debt products in this country are not traded on the listed market. They're traded as a, on a secondary market. What is N- NCT MLD? These are all net products, not convertible debentures, market linked debentures. These products are not traded on a, a stock exchange. They're traded when binding a substitute buyer. So when you basically replace one buyer with another, it's called a secondary market. And similarly, we have a secondary market. And we've seen a lot of liquidity being able to get liquidity so far in under 24 hours, 21 only. And so you said that you launched with a proof of concept. So that meant that you identified one property and you launched it, like in terms of getting a private limited company up to invest in that one property and then finding investors. Correct. So tell me about this first project that you, what was the project you identified? What was the price of it? And how did you go about finding the investors for it? Sure. So the first project was based in Pune. It was in uh, Magadpatta city. So Magadpatta is a very well-known development, uh, not only in India, but globally. And that is a Harvard Business School case study about this township. So it was a very unique mm-hmm. opportunity. Properties like this usually don't come onto market. They are owned by institutional funds, especially insurance funds. So Magadpatta is like the location is premium. That's what you're saying. Location is premium. It's a captive township. So you have 12 commercial buildings surrounded by all occupied residential. So a lot of them work in those 12 buildings. So these 12 buildings have never been vacant. And you know, the tenancy profile is fantastic. Whole drop, then I rechecks all the boxes. So when we took this one into the 25 crore lot project, and yeah, we took a leap of faith, we took it, we started funding. So when you say you took it, what does that mean? Like you. We signed a term sheet for the funding of the project. Okay. 
Okay, which would make it legally binding for you to then provide the money. Now the clock started ticking for you to go and get the funds from the investors, basically. Yes. And what is the period of that clock? Once you sign a term sheet, how long do you have to collect the money? It varies deal to deal. In that deal, it was about three months, I think. So, so three months is like pretty high stress though, right? Like you, you're on the hook for 30 crores and... You need to find investors. Yeah, and we do all the DC. And yes, it was a lot of work, but we figured it out. I mean, month number one, I don't think we did more than 25 lakhs. Yeah, and then... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow, you must have been sweating bullets. Huh? <laughs> well, the thing is, yes, we were sweating, but we also kept figuring out what we were doing wrong. Because we were getting a lot of positive response, but the conversions were not happening. So we were figuring out what is, like, what is wrong. Who's our Initially, we were targeting real estate investors and ultra HNNs. But what we realized is the other HNNs would need us. They can go and buy the property themselves for 25 crores. So then we switched to a salaried professional, especially lawyers, CAs. And that's where we found our base. You can say retired individuals, NRAs. So, you know, this is the segment we went after. And we actually completed the funding, I think, 48 hours before our deadline. So, yeah, we got it. We got it very close. We had a very small name, but we were through and through, I think, three months. Okay. And how were you doing customer acquisition? Was it like Google, Facebook, like performance marketing or was it like telecalling or what was it like? I mean, at that time we were doing, we were going and finding, because once we converted three post years, we realized that CAs are like great target audience for us. We went on LinkedIn and just started. Because CAs understand that the value of that investment. Yes. So... Yeah, so we went to LinkedIn, we started finding CAs, cold calling them, we started finding lawyers, cold calling them. Eventually, we realized that, and we aren't just not in our whole digital outreach like we have today. We did have a couple of leads coming, but that was very insignificant. So, uh, word of mouth, we reached out to every broker in the city, we went to chat with them, we shared our earnings with them, we told them that, listen, let's do this as a team together. Why would a broker help you? Because brokers know HNIs, that's the logic. Yeah, of course, I mean, their job is to raise funds for properties. So effectively, this is a different kind of opportunity. So you know, it would give them also variety in their offering. They've been selling the same thing now when you know, that was some it's working well, for some it isn't. So for the ones that it wasn't working, those guys were very open to drive new things. And you would share some commission with the broker? Yeah, we told the brokers that we were making, whatever amount we were making, we were happy to share that with them. The idea really was to demonstrate that this whole market exists. So more than making money at that point, we were okay giving our entire fee up also. Because the goal wasn't to try and make money of our first the project was to demonstrate that this could happen. If you like to hear stories of founders, then we have tons of great stories from entrepreneurs who have built billion-dollar businesses. Just search for the Founder Thesis Podcast on any audio streaming app like Spotify, Ghana, Apple Podcasts, and subscribe to the show. This is something which doesn't really need you to go to a VC to raise funds as such. Because there, there is no, I mean, it, like, like there's no heavy upfront costs here. Well, now today, if you ask for a team of 20, we have our office space. We've done heavy amounts of marketing campaigns, PR campaigns. That is a lot of cost associated, but we've always been very cognizant of our PRL. So we will short then our PRL remains strong. It's something that is, it doesn't go out of hand. Where, you know, in, in the chase for growth, we start ignoring profitability. So we wanted the company go and a bit, a bit more conservative, but we try to remain sustainable. And yes, species are approached us. We quite often entertain the offers as well, but the whole premise is that it's usually want to come in initially so they can get a large chunk and help out the startup. The point is that because we were having a strong BNL, we never wanted to give away a distress valuation. I mean, the need was never really there. Even today, we get a good offer, sure, we consider it, but there's no requirement as such. We are breaking even in the next uh, 30 days. Help me understand how this property gets managed, how you monetize. So you, you bought like a... Like one floor or one building, what did you buy for 30 crores? I mean, each project, like I mentioned, is different. And in these opportunities, in these institutional grade opportunities, 30, 50 crores get you one floor at best. But you're not like squalid on it. So you buy a floor plate. The other owners in our building were Man's Life Insurance, BNB, MedLife. So all institutional funds. But yes, our first one was a flow. Okay. And how, like what next? Once you bought it, how is it run? How do you manage it? Tell me about the logistics of making this work. Sure. So okay. we have a in-house asset management team. We have a server that looks over tenant relations. 
So we often identify the tenant before purchasing the property that way your rental comes in from day one. So in all of that, we have a very capable asset. And in fact, very experienced asset management team in house now. And they look at all this for sales management. Your, what you raise from investors includes some cash in hand because you may need to spend on fit outs and stuff like that. So, so you would need some cash in hand, right? Yeah, so in fact, we price it all our costs up front and we don't spend a single rupee on fit out. We make the tenants spend all the money. So that way the tenants' sickiness are also there to the premises. So that's in fact one of our primary conditions that the tenant has to also put his skin in the game. I mean, he can't expect us to sign a 15-year lease. Having no commitment to the premises. Okay, okay. So, so what you raise from investors, there is no cash in hand left for you. It is all going towards purchase of that property. Yeah, we need for my reserve of 10, 20, 30 lakhs, but not more than that. Okay, which is just like a contingency fund if there is any maintenance expenditure needed or something. Absolutely. And the building maintenance fees and all that is recovered from the rent. Like, all the running costs that you would incur as the owner of that property. We make the tenant pay everything. Oh, you make the tenant pay. Okay. So there is no running cost for you as such. You just have to collect the net rent amount from the tenant. No, so I know the thing is you put tenants want good buildings and uh, having good buildings in a time like this gives us the advantage that we get our terms. We of course give them things in exchange, but all on rounds are based on one basic principle that we need to increase the tenant's stickiness to the premises so much that we can't think it's as simple as that. Essentially, for a tenant, you want to convert this into subscription-based ownership instead of just plug and play, rent today, here, rent tomorrow, there. You don't want that kind of a business. Yeah, I'll give you an example. Now we're buying a property in Bangalore, which is we are, we are paying 8,000 rupees a square foot. The tenant is being fit out such a valued at 3,000 rupees a square foot. So he's almost paying 30% of the property price on fit out. So he has to be here for 10, 15 years. I mean, if he leaves before that, you know, it's not going to make sense. This private limited company which owns this property. So do you also retain some ownership in that or everything is owned by the investors? Not everything is owned by investors. We are simply the managers. So we charge the asset management fee. Like you were mentioning in neutral funds, it's 2%. percent did reach such 2%. We anywhere between 0.5 and 1%. Why do you not charge the industry standard 2%? Because we basically are doing everything tech-based. So all our lead gel is tech-based, our conversions are tech-based, investor all moving is tech-based. We are saving a lot of money relative to what the industry operates on today. So we pass on a little bit of that benefit. The whole point of using tech is to disrupt the norm. And 2% is something we don't need. Plus, there is no active portfolio management. Say in equity, you are actively doing portfolio management, turning stocks and all that here. In real estate, it's actually a little bit different and in some sense a little bit more intricate because we're signing legal documents with tenants, landlords, day in and day out. I mean, with lockdown game, we still maintain 100% legal action rate. So despite tenants asking for discounts and things like that, because all of it takes planning. So we had more examples to listen it over from other tenants for that same space. So when a tenant had asked us for a discount, we told him either you leave, we have this other tenant, or you stay and pay. I think those things require active management. If there are legal costs incurred to collect money and stuff like that, so, so that will be adjusted from the rental income. If it is over and above that contingency amount which you've kept, like you may end up needing to... No, we keep a provision for everything, even legal as a provision uh, day one. And uh, we count all that. So before acquisition, we complete all our legal work. No, but to collect rent, you might need, like there could be a case where somebody defaults and then you need to use legal methods to recover and like those kind of things. No, we take a six-month deposit from our tenants. Uh, okay, okay, okay. okay. So that default risk is not really there. Okay. Yeah, so we use the tenants money to figure out the solution. Nice, nice. Okay. And so that was like first project what you did. Now tell me how your own way of working, your systems, your processes, how they evolved from project one to project two. What was project two like? What was the ticket size of it? And how many days did you have then? And how long did it take you to collect all that money? And Yeah, so project two was again about 35 crores or that. In fact, we took about four months of downtime after the first complete project. And those four months, what we understood is the different processes and how we were automate that. So a lot of tech work went on behind the scenes. What processes did you automate? Help me understand. Everything which involves the investor, I mean, all the own KYC, document signing, onboarding, both sales, investment tracking, performance tracking, rental collection and disbursement. Okay, like giving them a dashboard. Yeah, then receipts, issuing receipts. I mean, every small thing which quite often we see on other platforms, we think is just part and parcel of that platform, but a lot of tech goes behind all of it. So just thinking out about holding flow and implementing it. 
that was uh, being done plus hiring because earlier we had two, three people who had done everything, but that's not a sustainable way, especially in the longer term. So we hired quite a bit. What kind of people did you hire like for doing sales? Or? So there's no one called a salesman and mighty. We, in fact, everyone has two or three positions because at the end of the day, we have periodic sales cycle. So when we have half death, we have two months sales, one month we don't. So most people do content writing, strategy, fundraising, business development, recruiting. So, you know, everyone does a variety of things. It's not restricted to sales. Fundraising would be like sales, basically, right? Like somebody who's doing fundraising. You can say to some extent, but it's more to do with business development, where you plan webinars, you plan launch events, PR strategy. So it's more to do with strategy. And the thing is, we mostly do inbound. So it's not as though we we are deep sitting around calling people all day. We mostly do inbound only. So when someone is interested after seeing our digital approach, so we do automated email or SAM automation, you know, all of that. And once someone expresses interest, then we just simply speak to him for a matter of 10 minutes and he can convert a completed onboarding himself online digitally. And how do you take the money? A payment gateway or a bank transfer? So we do bank transfer because payment gateways can't process the size of transactions that we what is the average size per investor? Minimum size, 25 lakhs. So like you spent a couple of months in putting these workflow automations in place and then building your team. Then what was project two? Yeah, so then we doubled down on all these things that project two we lost in Mumbai. Well, in right next to the airport in a new building called Enswear. Uh, our tenant was uh, a subsidiary of RBI, so fantastic tenant. Back there, the tech. Technology vertical of RBS. So they were using these Excel services, in fact, at Bobit. So, you know, no problem there also. But overall, you know, it was a very unique opportunity. We ended up, we ended funding it in a very good time. So, I think two and a half months or two months, we took to fund the team, which was a significant improvement. And we also did it far more streamlined. I mean, there was no stress, no pressure at any point. We were always in a good spot. And we've done quite a few projects thereafter. Now we are doing our project in Bangalore. This is the most ambitious one. Which project number is this, which you're doing now? So this should be about five. Okay. And just quick summary of projects three and four. One and two, you told me. What was project three and four? Yeah, so project three again was in Magarbatta only. So we spoke, it was the same seller. So we had told that we'll only buy half and then he sold the other half also because we could digest it. And the other project was in BKC and Mumbai. So that was also something which, in fact, we sold 20 crores in 48 hours. So that was... Yeah, that was our uh, flagship achievement. Right now, we've taken the most ambitious project we've ever taken at close to 75 crores. Wow. Okay. Okay. And where is this? Tell me about the current project. It's in Bangalore. It's in Outdoor Road. Hopefully, the funding should be complete by the time this ends. It's a brand new development called Vashnavi Tech Park. Then it is Grow. Ah, Grow. Okay. The unicorn. Yeah. It's the corporate headquarters. And again, this is the business which only grows in pandemic. So, right. this was something we thought was the risk of us to the climate. Plus, they're investing heavy amounts of money into the premises because, you know, not definitely the office, not like a normal office. They're putting escalators. They're putting a lot of very fancy stuff. So, they're not leaving the space for a very long time. Okay. And, Okay. Do you see repeat buyers like someone who invested in project one would also invest in project two? And what rate does that happen? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, we have a very high repeat investor rate, especially for the ticket side of 25 lakhs, 25% of our opportunities get funded by existing investors. Yeah, even this time out of 70 crores, we roughly funded five crores from existing investors. So, so as your investor base increases, it gives you that confidence that you can raise funds more quickly because you know that a certain percentage of your investor base will come and invest in the next project. Absolutely. What are the ways in which you are acquiring customers? One you said is like webinars. What else? So we do a lot of content first marketing. So we do a lot of VR, publications, educational pieces, awareness pieces. Apart from that, we do, we get a lot of uh, referral of word of mouth investors. We started tapping into NRI publications of recent, which has been great for us. But of course, we follow the mainstream so all of that we do as well. And so, and the way you make money is just that 1% management, 0. 0.5 to 1% management fees. That is the only way for you to make money. There's no other way. No, we have a performance fee also, which we charge at the time of exit of the property or when the property is sold, but we only charge it above a 12% IRR. So that's above a 12% annualized return. If the investor makes any surplus money, then we charge it 20% profit share. So 80% of the investor still keeps. Okay, which is like the standard PE hedge fund kind of a norm or even VCs. Yeah, and so normally VCs and VCs charge above 8%. So it's the main difference. So we charge above 12. Ah, okay, above 8%. Okay, got it. And what do you think is going to be the life 
or the tenure of a, any of these projects? Like, when do you think that liquidation event will happen? So we projected preemptively based on current market scenarios. Of course, it can fluctuate plus minus. But our earliest one, we've you know, projected exits in 2025. Okay, for the project one or project one and three are the same building only, I guess. So, so why not? Yeah, so project one and three are in 2025. Project number two is, I think, 2030. So it again varies. There's no, it depends on the property, the specifics. There's no such hard and fast rule. Is there democracy in deciding whether to exit or not? Do you need to secure majority approval of the investors before you sell? Or like, how does that happen? How, how does the exit event or the liquidation event happen? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, we solicit offers from the market. What we have obviously presented to the investors. What 75% or more give us the go-ahead, the only that we exit. And the exit would involve... The Selling the property, getting the cash back into that private limited, giving the cash to investors and then winding it up. Yeah. Got it. Okay, okay, okay. Got it. I've understood the full cycle. Okay. So how big do you think this space is? So so currently you are doing a 70 crore project and you do what? One project a year, two projects a year? What will be your... I mean, uh, I tell you, so last year in 10 months, we did 150 crores across four projects. This year, we've already done, uh, this, I mean, 70 crores is what we're doing right now. Our target this year is about 300 to 400 crores. So we're, not, we're looking at doing five or six projects this year. So if, and next year our target is one a month. So it depends on the sales velocity, it depends on the kind of supply that we get access to. But we are seeing strong demand. All our opportunities are being oversubscribed. So uh, overall, currently demand is not a problem. It's we're just trying to build velocity. So so you would end up doing the thousand crores total deployment next year and like maybe 1500 crores after that something like that that's the kind of growth rate you're seeing by by say four five years down the line you're looking at what two two and a half thousand crore annual deployment not annual i don't think this morning then you shouldn't do more than 500 to thousand crores because at the end of the day these are still retail funds so there's a barrier into how many people will do 25 packs like this so what we are trying to do is that by the time we hit 2025 we want to give exits what we deliver or what we projected so those investors more often than not will readdress that same bundle with us so effectively your base will never really go down okay so so you want that liquidation event to happen when you also have fresh in- inventory to offer to that same pool of investors. No, absolutely. In fact, the intent is to always keep a property live on our platform so that investors always have something or the other to dabble with. But yes, if a liquidation event happens simultaneously, then nothing like it. Uh, so, we'd say if you have two and a half thousand total assets under management, so your earning would be like a one percent of, so like about twenty-five crores would be your top line number. Yes. Got it, got it. Okay, okay. So what is, what's like the long-term roadmap for Myra Capital? So we're coming up with a few more interesting investment products. So we're diversifying our product offering. Again, that's something which is a work in progress. So we're still evaluating the risk return proposition, if this is right for investor, things like that. But that is one of the areas in which we're looking to grow. What are some of those ideas that you're mulling over? Like, So different investment in real estate comes in many shapes and forms. You can go into construction, you can go vacant property, you can go into land, you can go into many forms. When each has a, if you go into land, you'll have a much higher return projection, but equally higher risk. And if you go into unidentified, it wouldn't be slightly lower return, but it's worth saying you So you know, it's a scale of risk and return. There's nothing which comes without a risk and high return. So bringing that to investors in a safe manner is what we're contemplating because at the end of the day, risk is risk. So it doesn't matter if I'm managing it or someone, if it's a third party risk, then that risk is there. So I'm just trying to figure out how we can accommodate that, how we can position it. If there is an appetite, wouldn't. So all these things we evaluate. So if you were to go with land, then you would construct or you would have a developer? Like you would fund the land for a developer who would construct and then get it ready? The point is first you have to be okay with getting into under construction to begin with or getting into broad fringes to begin with. The structures that you can explore are many. But the fundamental question is that is it okay for us as a platform even if we disclose risk? To position something which potentially has loss of capital risk, even if the upside is however large. That is the fundamental question which you are working on to say if there's a way we can do a control risk. But once that is addressed, I mean, any number of models can be fit into the system. I'm guessing that the key lever to unlock or the key constraint to growth is supply, right? If you're able to get supply, because there's so many things which have to fall in place for good supply, like you need the right location, you need 
a well-made building. So you need a developer who has good credentials. You need a tenant who is interested in that. So, so I, I'm guessing that your primary constraint would be supply, not demand, right? Well, supply is, well, it was a constraint. We're getting better at it because the, the thing is that supply is not something which ever comes to it up on a planet. It's a, like you mentioned, it's a mix of moving parts. So, you know, we're becoming better at finding good properties and independently finding good tenants. And then we try and put those two together and effectively create a supply. So it's an ongoing thing. Our tenant relations have expanded. Our developer relations are expanded. We're in discussions for future projects. Like I know we are closing on the sort of building that is completing in very, very ball. So I'm creating a pipeline for even the future. The developer gets certain deal in. That has a buyer for that project. So he also can take more risk maybe today and expand and do one more part. So with that, he's able to plan his cash flow and I'm able to plan my bike thing. So that kind of arrangements we are setting up because, yes, supply was challenging, but it's important to build that supply thing preemptive. Okay, got it. So what's the path to like getting to a 100 crore annual revenue business. So I have always, in fact, told my view also that revenue is really doesn't matter. What we are looking for is profit because, I mean, revenue doesn't imply really anything. So if you're being large and making less money is not ideal because, yeah, one way is to go after growth, but we want to do growth, but with real. So our intention is to maintain a very lean deal. Maybe right now it really will expand to 30, but not more. And even at 25 crore block line, we are highly, highly profitable. So I intend to try and target 100 crore revenue. What would be the profit at a 25 crore? Like a 10 crore would be the profit there, I'm guessing. Like, I mean, your expenses. Maybe higher than also. Okay. Your expenses might be at best like 1 crore a month, I'm guessing. And that's it. I mean, we break even at a. You can say we will break even and full capacity at let's say six crores per year. So you know I don't yeah, so I don't need a top line now. All I need is profitability. And you are the sole founders here. It's hundred percent owned by you. Right. Amazing. Okay. And so I guess it makes no sense to even look at fundraise VCs because you have no need for it, right? You you are almost at break even. By the time this airs, you will be breaking even and your costs are not going to rise exponentially. There's not a direct relationship between revenue and cost. It's not like for every one rupee more of revenue, your costs have to go up by a corresponding percentage. Yeah, that's actually the best part of this business, that your costs are not linked with revenue. Your costs are more or less fixed and revenue can keep growing on that same base. Amazing. Okay, okay. Would the going, uh, like looking at the future, would you have more business as in more investors coming directly or would there also be like a channel through which you acquire investors? Like the first time you did it, you used broker network to acquire investors. So, so do you think that a channel contribution is going to be significant in the long term or it will be like direct acquisition that will be more significant? So we've actually, the most successful uh, for us is neither. It's actually referrals. Referrals have been the strongest signal point of conversion. So that's something which we are keen to expand on. We get a lot of direct investors also, especially from a lot of our content plus marketing that we discussed. But through our other distribution channels, we're keeping them open. We are getting traction from them. But the idea is to eventually, at least for repeat investors, become a DIY platform. Because I know initially for someone to put in 25 lakhs, it's difficult to DIY. But the feed investor, you know how it works. Then we eventually want to become a DIY platform. Okay, so so the distributor-led acquisition would be pretty minimal because this is only like a one-time bringing in customer job that they would do. But as your existing base grows, the repeat purchase increases, the referral increases. So so that would be a pretty marginal source of investment that going through brokers and other distributors. Well, I'll put it another way. We have a team that manages partners, which includes wealth managers, IFA, brokers, even some CEOs actually. And we are continuing to wrap that up because we don't know what the future holds for us. I mean, today we are doing a 70 crore property. Let's do a 150 crore property that every last rupee of one irrespective broker, non-broker, direct, referral, all of it is important. So you're not regarding the importance of any sales funnel yet. But uh, the future, we should current trends, referrals are going to be at the very leader followed by partners. And What is the role of technology here besides the automation of your workflows? One role of tech is to automate workflows, make things DIY, move things along smoother. What else? Any other role of tech here? If I was to onboard 200 investors into a real estate property, it would take me two months of paperwork. 
you know, we templatized it, all the signing is digital. And for that matter, all the post investment reporting. So all the reports that you might have seen in the YouTube one and everything, that everything is fully end automated. So that's why we are still in team. You can say 50% of the work gets done by humans, 50% by tech. Because while you often people mistake tech for what they see on a website, but tech really is something which helps you reduce cost via means of automation. So a lot of our tech is on the operation side, backend side. And that, that tech is far more valuable to us today than let's say the tech which is what the investor is really seeing. So uh, there is this growing trend of remote work. So doesn't that concern you like from the perspective of commercial real estate losing its sheen because maybe companies don't need big offices now. Uh, they would have a lot of their headcount working remotely. What do you think about that? Sure, so I'll talk a little bit about the trends in the industry that went in. But I'll tell you how it actually impacted us first. And for the first two, three months, it was a fantastic solution work from home. All the employees in the world team was very happy. After that, you know, I started getting complaints of fatigue. I suddenly getting complaints of, you know, space at home from my employees. And eventually, we wanted to come back to work. So what we did instead is, even in lockdowns, we did this concept called work from work. So effectively, what that meant is that we all booked out a villa or a part of a hotel and we quarantined together, we worked together. So that's the extent people go to because for us to do good work, for people to innovate, come up with solutions that have not existed before, it's important to be in a collaborative environment. Sitting in one house is not the most conducive of spaces. So overall, that's the, that's the perspective we have. But even in the industry, you will see. Leasing has picked up to pre-pandemic levels. Large organizations are going back to work. And contrary to expectation, what is now happening is that earlier the area per employee that was being dedicated by MNC was roughly 40 to 50 square feet. In a post-pandemic world now, uh, MNCs are mandating 75 to 80 square feet. So the com- consumption by employees is decreasing. So someone who was occupying one floor earlier is now actually trying to occupy two floors to accommodate the same number of ways. So that's a trend that is actually causing a really uh, massive uptick in the demand for upper space. I mean, only last week did you see LABM, Cocentric, Accenture, all of these tenants are back in the market with RFPs. Okay, okay. TCS had made this very bold statement at the beginning of pandemic that they will be 100% remote in a couple of years. You think that was just like over-enthusiastic announcement. I don't think they're actually going that way. No, I mean, to the contrary, TCS is back in office. They've taken a full campus from Iran and Dani and Thade. So yes, you know, work from home at the start of COVID sounded great. It also was a solution to you know, provide lockdown comfort to employees. I mean, when you have uncertainty these organizations, that is worse than having nothing. So at that point, I guess organizations felt work from home was a solution that would at least guide them out you know, a year or two. But today, I don't think that it was a single employee which will tell you that they want to work from home in perpetuity. Got it. And uh, do you, like, what about co-working spaces? Have they recovered back to pre-pandemic levels? Are you, like, aware of what's happening in that space? No, absolutely. In fact, also co-working as a concept in itself is something which I'm wary of where you're catering to individuals or small startups. What is a more promising trend to see is the concept of managed leasing. So that's an evolution of co-working. So in managed leasing, the concept really is to make a fully managed office, but for fully enterprise clientele. So if someone like a Microsoft, Amazon, take up large amounts of space. So SmartWorks, IndyQ, these are some of the players, stable space that have pivoted from co-working to managers. They don't want the risk of a single person. They don't want the risk of a small startup. So the difference between co-working and managed leasing is the ticket size. Like co-working would be single seat or five seats. Managed leasing would be 50 seats or 100 seats. That's the difference. Yes, and with that comes implied differences also. For example, working is, it's, the whole model is made for single seat, but at high cost and high luxury. So you go to a work. You'll probably in Mumbai end up being very, very, very 30,000 rupees. But you'll get that kind of amenities. Now, an uh, enterprise lender doesn't need it and also doesn't want to pay for it. So, comparatively, our managing operator smart works. In the adjacent metric, smart works is operating seat for 6,000 rupees. So, that's the kind of price you have to get. So, it's a completely different model that comes out of it. Uh, whereas, yes, the uh, face value difference only is the type of tenant and size of tenant. But it has many implied consequences that it will not out for it. And probably there'll be a lock-in period also with the managed leasing contract. Like it's not like month-to-month payment. Absolutely. Five years. Five years. Okay. So essentially it's like regular renting an office, except you don't have to worry about the day-to-day running of it. There's someone who's taking care of all the ancillary stuff. You, Your people just come in and work. Absolutely. If you like the Founder Thesis podcast, 
then do check out our other shows on subjects like marketing, technology, career advice, books, and drama. Visit thepodium.in, that is T-H-E-P-O-D-I-U-M dot I-N for a complete list of all our shows.